Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 12th, 2021, lunchtime in San Francisco, the lovely city on the Pacific coast of the United States, about as far from Israel as you can get geographically and perhaps culturally and politically. Israel, as so often, is in the news again, um, or at least aspects of Israel. Uh, Sally Rooney, who's supposed to be the leading millennial author, novelist, I don't know quite what that means, has announced that she won't release her new bestseller in Israel. Uh, she, uh, quoting her group, she said, earlier this year, the international campaign group Human Rights Watch published a report entitled A Threshold Cross, Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. That report coming on the heels of a similarly damning report by Israel's most prominent human rights organization confirmed what Palestinian human rights groups have long been saying. Israel's system of racial domination and segregation against Palestinians meets the definition of apartheid under international law. The A word. And so uh, Sally Rooney has decided that, I guess, either neither Israelis nor uh, Palestinians can read her new book, although I'm sure they can figure out ways to get it. Um, Meanwhile, uh, more locally, uh, Amazon and Google workers who have suddenly become quite confident, perhaps even cocky, are calling for the termination of Israeli military contracts, which I guess were signed by their two companies, Amazon and Google. Once again, they're arguing that these contracts uh, will make the systematic discrimination and displacement carried out by the Israeli military and government even crueler and deadlier for Palestinians. So once again, um, we are perhaps confused and indeed conflicted about Israel, uh, this incredibly conflicted and confusing and controversial state in the middle of the Middle East. Uh, my guest today on the show has, appropriately enough, a book out about Israel, which is called Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused, and Conflicted. As it happens, he's actually my neighbor in San Francisco, uh, Daniel Sokach. Uh, Daniel, uh, before we get to the book, quick response to the, the Sally Rooney and uh, Google, Amazon news. Are you sympathetic to Rooney's position and the, the position of the Amazon and Google workers? Or is this symptomatic of the confusion uh, about Israel, particularly in the United States? Well, I think that they're, they're different. They're different things. And um, I'll say first, all, first off, I, I, don't, um, I don't subscribe to, the, to or support the idea of cultural boycotts uh, certainly not in this situation, um, for I think reasons that that um, that are fairly evident to many of us, which is that cultural exchanges, like academic and educational exchanges, um, 
are, are, are things that, that, that create the import and export of ideas, um, that strengthen those people who are uh, dissenting voices in their countries, and that often are um, really uh, the, the tools that put wind in the sails of folks who are trying to speak truth to power wherever they live. Uh, that said, I, I suppose I, I, I have, um, a, I, I think I have a pretty, um, I have a lot of empathy for Irish, young Irish people who looking at the conflict in the Middle East and looking at what is now a 54 year uh, old occupation and settlement enterprise of the Palestinian territories in violation of international law um, against EU and, and, and US and UN policy. I have sympathy for why um, someone like Sally Rooney might think that um, that protesting in a peaceful, in a nonviolent way, like like a cultural boycott, uh, is is uh, is a good path. I, I again, uh, I don't think it's it's the right tool for for the situation, cultural boycott. So, but I do have sympathy for it, and I also think that the Amazon and and I guess Google um, uh, workers that you that you also mentioned are a harbinger. They're an indicator of something that's changing in this country and, and indeed in the West, which is for a very long time, for many reasons, um, it was it was not really acceptable in, in the discourse to be critical of Israel in certain ways. And one opened oneself up for all kinds of accusations, including that of being anti-Semitic, if you criticize Israeli policy. Well, that's highly problematic. And people who love and support Israel, I count myself uh, among them, uh, are also often very critical of Israeli policy and politics, just as we as Americans uh, might feel about uh, an administration or a set of policies here in this country. And the the urge to conflate those things is very problematic. Um, what I think uh, and what I hope people in Israel are waking up to see is that we're no longer in an era where the world and and Americans, Europeans, American Jews, and others who really do support Israel, and Andrew, the EU is Israel's number one trading partner. It's its biggest trading partner. And of course, the US is its strongest ally. So we're not talking about countries that are oppositional when it comes to Israel. Its best friends in the world are telling it, we have a big problem with this settlement enterprise and we can't really ignore it anymore. And certainly a new generation, you know, as evidenced by Sally Rooney in Ireland, the squad and others in the Democratic Party here, and even young evangelicals in the United States who are traditionally part of a very strong uh, base of support for, for Israel are, are saying uh, in poll after poll that they have real issues with the direction Israel is going with its settlement enterprise in the West Bank. Even, uh, even Ben and Jerry, those uh, old leftists, uh, apparently, um, are they not allowing uh, Israelis to eat their ice cream? Or they're, they're, they're certainly boycotting the settlements, not of Israel. What are they up to, Ben and Jerry? Yeah, well, it's certainly the latter and not the former. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're, what they're saying is they don't want, and by the way, Ben and Jerry, although I think supportive of this move, as far as I understand, don't have much to do with the company these days. But, um, but what Ben and Jerry's is saying is we don't want to sell our ice cream in the Israeli settlements built over the green line, that is to say the border between Israel and the Palestinian territories that Israel conquered, the West Bank, uh, and East Jerusalem areas that Israel conquered after the Six-Day War. In I think this is going to get a collective shrug, um, Daniel, <laughs> well, because the Israelis make very good ice cream, probably better than uh, Ben and Jerry's. Anyway, you know, people are going to be watching things. Who this? Who who is this Daniel Sokach guy? Is he pro pro Israel, anti Israel, Jewish, Palestinian? You are the 
let's put our cultural political cards on the table, Daniel. You are the, in addition to the author of Can We Talk About Israel, you're the author, you're the CEO of the New Israel Fund. And my understanding of that is it's a, a progressive left of center sort of uh, marginally Zionist group who are also very critical of, of, of the current situation in Israel. Is that fair? Well, NIF is the oldest and largest organization working to promote progressive civil society in Israel. It was founded actually in San Francisco in 1979, a group of uh, young progressive American Jews and young progressive Israelis in Israel founded NIF to help build uh, the, the ecosystem of nonprofit organizations and activists that we call in the U.S. civil society. So virtually every uh, civil rights organization, LGBTQ organization, women's rights organization, uh, human rights group, um, they're all funded and or were founded by New Israel Fund. So if you imagine uh, ACLU, Planned Parenthood, Lambda Legal Defense, the Sierra Club, all mixed into one, uh, that's close to what NIF is. Very kosher then, to use a, a, a Yiddish term, uh, Daniel, at least on the left, or you're claiming to be quite kosher on the left. So let's go to the book. Um, Can We Talk About Israel? A Guide for the Curious, Confused, and Conflicted begins with a, a rather cute map of Israel, although, of course, there's no such thing really as a cute map of Israel. Um, why the need for the book? There are so many books about Israel, so many books claiming to be balanced and fair. What are you bringing to the party that hasn't been said many times before about Israel, Daniel? Yeah, well, it's a good question. First, as you say, there are many books claiming to be balanced and fair when it comes to Israel. And there are some out there, but the vast majority of books that are out there fall into one of two camps. One is uh, they are polemics, maybe disguised as something that is less partisan, but they really are arguments. I mean, you know, there's one that came out from a famous American uh, legal scholar and lawyer a few years back called something like The Case for Israel. That didn't try to hide what it was. It was just- What was the name of the author, Daniel? That was Mr. Alan Dershowitz. Ah, uh, yes. Our listeners will be familiar with many of them. Um, and there are similarly sort of polemics out there that argue essentially that Palestinian narrative is, is the one true narrative. Um, there are a lot of books like that. There are also a lot of books that are what I would call inaccessible. They're academic, they're written by and for scholars or, or Middle East experts um, or Israel experts. And what I wanted to do here was to create something that was both um, honest and balanced. I'm very clear about who I am and where I'm coming from. Um, I'm a, I consider myself a liberal a uh, proud liberal supporter of Israel uh, and a critic of Israel in the same way I'm a patriotic liberal American and critic of America. But I also wanted to write something that felt really accessible to people because I think that this topic is one of the most intimidating and challenging for people to really even opine upon. Uh, a, because as I, as I ask in the book, can you think of another subject where so many people feel so strongly and are so certain and so emotionally invested in an issue about which they don't actually know all that much. So the idea of, the, as you put it, the cute map of Israel, the, uh, the style of the writing is meant to make it accessible and uh, easily digestible, albeit not simple. So the first part of the book is trying to get people up to speed with the history. Right. So the first part, and, and, and coming back to the, we did have um, a few months ago, Noah Tishby, who's a 
quite a well-known actress, sure. Los Angeles-based actress. She's written a book about Israel, very much, I think, from the conservative perspective. Um, so we've had these sorts of discussions before. As you say, the book begins historically, lots of chapters on, uh, and the first one is Jews and Israel, where, where do we start? What are you adding in a historical sense? What, 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 what do you think will upset conservatives and then what will upset liberals in terms of your historical treatment of the story of Israel? Well, I suspect there's enough in the book to upset everybody. Um, Good. Well, I hope so. Right. Right. Exactly. So, look, you know, it, I, I think, for example, one of the things and I, and I say this at the beginning of the book, you may read things that you don't even believe uh, and that you can't believe are true. But, you know, I think it will be upsetting to some readers to learn that there were pre-state Jewish terrorist organizations who murdered uh, Palestinians and 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 civilians, British and Jewish and Palestinian. Who, by the way. I mean, most people know that, don't they? Yeah, some people know that. Um, a lot of people don't know about things like the Deir Yassin massacre. Um, but, but again, we said what will anger them, not necessarily what will they discover in the book. Um, and and similarly, similarly, on the other side, you know, I think the book makes a pretty powerful argument that for uh, the Jews of Europe in the early to mid 20th century, uh, Israel and Zionism were an imperfect but ultimately correct answer to the question of what's going to happen to the Jews of, of, of Europe. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I always take there's that great image that Amos Oz, the great Israeli author and peace activist, uh, once wrote that, that, that the justification for Zionism is like the justification that a drowning person has when he swims to a plank floating in the sea and there's already someone clinging to the plank. The second guy has the right to cling to the plank as well. He even has the right to shove the first guy over to make room for himself but he doesn't have the right to shove the first guy uh, into the sea. And, and to my mind, that's, that is the correct justification. And I know that that is not going to make some folks who perhaps take the Sally Rooney position very happy. But, you know, this is all about trying to understand two peoples, both of whom are victims uh, of each other, of themselves, of the world, and both of whom have real, really legitimate claims to the small parcel of land. And if you don't see... Israel-Palestine as a zero-sum game where one side's going to win and one side has God on their side and the other doesn't, then it entails compromise and murkiness and grays. Well, that is, can we talk about Israel? Um, I have to admit that I found it interesting, but like so many other people, I think I was well, I was irritated by one thing. Uh, you, you talk about, and I'm quoting you here from the introduction, uh, you say, I do have an agenda and I come from and with a particular perspective. I believe that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is essentially a struggle between what the historian Benny Morris has called righteous victims, two peoples, both with legitimate connections and claims to the land who have been victimized by the outside world, each other and themselves. It is a conflict about land and also about memory and legitimacy, about the right to exist and also about the right to self-determination. I don't obviously disagree with that, but it's a conflict in which one group is clearly the winner and one is the loser. These are not equal claims or equal situations. I mean, the Israelis have seized the land for better or worse, with or, you know, whether I mean, some people could argue they have the right to it, others don't. But they are the owners of the land. They run the show there. So 
this notion of seeing both peoples in this sort of equal sense as being uh, righteous victims, isn't that too balanced, Daniel? Well, look, I think I don't I agree with you that there are obviously very different circumstances and the power dynamic is is obviously what you said it is. I don't agree that uh, I don't I, I do think that both peoples do have uh, legitimate claims to the land. And I think that sort of the game of whose claim is more legitimate is is not a particularly useful one of playing. Um, now, if if what you're really asking is the Israelis having won, why should they compromise? That's a reasonable question. No, no, no I'm not asking that. I'm just right. sort of suggesting that this notion of, of seeing two people squabbling over land and saying, well, they both have to a right to it is is not really the point given that well, one group has the land and one doesn't. Well, okay, that's true, except for Israel, despite Donald Trump's green light and Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Netanyahu's repeated claims that it was going to annex the West Bank. We all remember that from a year and a half ago. Uh, it didn't annex it, and it's not annexed it. And, it. and that's because it recognizes that in doing so, it will create for itself a possibly insoluble problem, where if it annexes... Uh, the West Bank and and incorporates the settlements into Israel without making way for some kind of two-state solution where the Palestinians get a country in the West Bank uh, with you know some part of East Jerusalem as their capital, they have a huge problem. They do not know what to do permanently with two and a half million Palestinians who live in that territory next to 650,000 Israelis. So I think the unresolved nature, you know, the fact that even Israelis who don't want to call that territory occupied often will call it disputed, right? They understand that it's not resolved. It may be resolved in the minds of uh, some Israeli Jews right now and some supporters of Israel, but for many Israelis and for the Palestinians and for the rest of the world, the fate of the West Bank is not resolved. So I guess I would disagree that there isn't a live conflict about what the future of that territory is going to be. Um here we have a map for those people who don't know where the West Bank is. It's clearly outlined uh, in, in the map from the book. Um, Daniel, you mentioned the two-state uh, solution. We had, and I'm sure you know him very well, uh, Peter Beinart on the show um, recently. He believes that the idea of a two-state solution for Israel and Palestinian no longer exists um, he also came on the show to suggest that America really has screwed everything up when it comes to the Middle East because they are so biased. Well, what's your take both on the failure of American democracy over the last 50 years? Um, sorry, the failure of American diplomacy, not democracy. Right. That was a Freudian era. I knew what and, you meant. Uh, and I have the same worries. Yeah. Right. And, um, and this idea that given the Israeli carve up of most of much of the Palestinian territory, the notion of a two-state solution is no longer viable. Yeah, well, look, I, I Peter's a good friend and I think he's a brilliant guy and I respect him uh, immensely. And I don't agree with him here. Uh, you know, again, as I write in the book, I think that the biggest obstacle to um, a resolution of this conflict is not a failure of imagination, but rather a, a lack of will. Right. That, that, that's why we don't have a two state solution. And so it is true that every um, every, you know, every day in some sense that Israel continues to expand settlements or that violence uh, from the Palestinians or from the settlers continues makes the two state solution less and less uh, imaginable. And yet of all of the 
seemingly impossible resolutions to the conflict, it, it is probably the least impossible for the greatest number of people. So, you know, Peter's not wrong when he says it seems impossible and very far away now. Uh, many people have said that. John Kerry said it when he was Secretary of State. Um, but but I, I'm not sure anyone's put together a better alternative. What Peter what Peter suggests, um, the idea of a single democratic state, essentially the one state solution, is not something that most Israelis and most Palestinians want right now. Uh, that said, well, there. Where, where are you guys at the New Israeli Fund? Um, New on Israel the, Fund, the single state versus the the two state solution. Uh, we still we support a two state solution. I will say that's not the moral north of the New Israel Fund, insofar as what we believe in is uh, working to support Israelis who themselves are uh, are working for equality, dignity, human rights for all Israelis and everyone living under Israeli control. Um, that said, we we do believe that the two-state solution remains the single best hope for the kind of resolution that would allow uh, all those people to live with dignity and, and human rights in some semblance of a democratic society. Before we get on, you, you do have in the book some some reasons for optimism or some some people who give us reasons for optimism. I want to get to them, but yeah. a couple of things that popped out to me about the book. Um, the A word, you have a couple of chapters on two A words. The first is the apartheid word. Do, you, you confront that directly. Is, America, is Israel an apartheid state, as Sally Rooney is suggesting? Well, I don't, I don't think it is, but I think it's a more complicated answer than that soundbite. And, and I'll do it very quickly, right? Uh, if, if, and again, this is, this is in the book. Uh, if you give, gave me a group of intellectually honest uh, left-wing critics of Israel, Sally Rooney and, and, and her friends, and you let me take them up and down the length and breadth of the state of Israel for a couple of weeks, and we met, uh, we met Jews and Arabs and different kinds of Jews, and we met officials, and we saw uh, the composition of the High Court of Justice, which has an Arab justice sitting on it. We saw that the third largest party in Israel, up until the last election anyway, was an Arab, a largely Arab party. Uh, and we saw the, the lack of equality among various sectors in Israel, um, but the free press and the fact that Arabs do have uh, the ability to rise to the top of professions uh, while facing real discrimination, you'd have to conclude at the end of those two weeks, if you were being intellectually honest, that what you saw in no way resembled an apartheid state. Right, it it, it resembled um, aspects of a lot of works in progress or democracies in progress, like our own, where there's systemic racism and institutionalized bias, but also folks working to repair that. Uh, so, well, Israel, are you suggesting that what what would be the equivalent of the the non-Jewish Arab population of Israel in the United States? Are they well, uh, African Americans? Sure, that's a perfectly reasonable analogy. So you're saying that the the situation of Palestinians in Israel is similar to the situation of African-Americans in America today. I'm saying it resembles it in certain ways when it comes to policing and discrimination, but also uh, opportunity. A big difference is, of course, Israel has never really resolved what it means to be a full and equal democracy that gives equality to all of its citizens, regardless of race, religion, creed. Yeah, I, I don't know, Daniel. I mean, I understand somewhat, but but, but I, I can't, uh, America elected an African American. Yeah, president. no, I no. don't see in the in the near future uh, a Palestinian prime minister of Israel. What, what about the issue of anti-Semitism? Well, the other A word that you bring up. How one in your in your view? Can you be critical? Uh, of Israel without being an anti-Semite. I've never quite understood that word, given that 
uh, both uh, Muslim Arabs, Arabs or, or Semites Arabs too. and Jews are both Semitic peoples, but that's another, that's a, a Semitic yeah. issue. Well, before I, before I answer that, uh, and in a way that's, I think, an easier answer, I want to say that if you let me take an intellectually honest group of right-wing supporters of Israel to the West Bank, and they saw the settlers and the Palestinians and the checkpoints and the inequitable distribution of resources and the two systems of justice where Israeli citizens living in territory that is not Israel have access to the Israeli civil courts, they vote in Israeli elections, and non-Jewish uh, Palestinians living in the same territory controlled by Israel don't have those rights and privileges, you'd be hard-pressed to say that that didn't look like uh, a type of apartheid. And that's, of course, what Human Rights Watch and several Israeli human rights organizations recently ruled in their, or recently opined in their reports. They said that according to the legal description of the international crime of apartheid, we're not talking about the description of South Africa for their purposes, Israel is committing the crime of apartheid in the West Bank. So my point is only that within Israel proper, I don't think there's a serious argument that it looks like an apartheid situation, even though, as you say, they're, gener they're, they're probably generations away from an Arab prime minister of Israel, if ever. But within the West Bank, it looks a lot more like uh, a very problematic uh, situation that, according to international law, looks a lot like the crime of apartheid. And that's not a soundbite. That's not an easy answer. Now, when it comes to anti-Semitism, you know, look, uh, I think a lot of people have a, a, a internal radar where, 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 where anti-Semitic stuff uh, s sounds an alarm off. Criticism of Israel uh, and Israeli policies is not in and of itself anti-Semitic. So when an Israeli government minister has, 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 has happened, accuses uh, the European Union of being anti-Semitic because it wants Israel, it wants uh, settlement products labeled as made in Israeli settlements, not made as an Israel, made in Israel in EU supermarkets, or when Ben and Jerry's just doesn't want to sell its ice cream in the settlements, but wants to sell it in Israel proper. When those people are labeled as anti-Semitic, that uh, is, in my opinion, uh, a, a dangerous misuse of the term anti-Semitic. However, when critics of Israel blame Jews in Paris or London or Los Angeles for what they think Israel is doing or has done and attack those Jews, um, that's anti-Semitism. When people single Israel out for a level of opprobrium that they would never think of uh, singling any other country out for and declare that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, that is uh, often colored by anti-Semitism. So it's, uh, there's, not, there's, there's not a bright line, but I think a thinking person can understand when criticism of Israel is legitimate and when it crosses the line into anti-Semitism, which it does sometimes, but it's all obscured by accusations by some that any criticism of Israel amounts to anti-Semitism, which is not true. I'm not sure, Daniel, whether people who read the book are going to be I mean, they're not, they're not going to be as confused because you do do a good job kind of unraveling stuff, but they're going to be equally conflicted. If anything, I think you want them to be conflicted. It reminds me of that remark by the Texan governor. I think her name was Jean Richards, who said that the only thing in the middle of the road in Texas are dead possums. Um, by yeah. being so carefully balanced, so fair to either side, do you think... You're, 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 you're doing the work of Sisyphus that really you have to come down on one side or the other because otherwise everyone's going to hate you or everyone's going to ignore you. Well, it's a, it's a, first of all, I want to say that question is the first time you, you're the first person who's asked me about 
the part about being conflicted and whether I'm really trying to remedy that. And I love the question because um, I'm not, you're right. I actually, I want you to be less confused. Um, uh, I want to satisfy your curiosity, but I tend to think that the only thinking position to emerge from a real deep study of this is one that has some conflict in it. Um, and I think it was Ann Richards, that, that governor of well, Texas. Yeah, I, I was, yeah. I knew it was Richards. Yeah, you got, it. you got it. Um, you got it. But, but only I think two names of women in Texas, right? They're either Jean or Ann. That could be right. And there are um, Jewish women, I don't think. I think you're probably right. But and Molly Ivins was a great journalist from right, Texas right, right. also. But I think that, you know, the I I, I guess uh, what I hope is that I don't come down in the middle of the road so much as I come down saying, look, you have to try to understand the deep emotional place that both of the parties to this conflict are coming from. Just as, you know, in Northern Ireland, for example, you, you, you had to try to understand the concerns of the Catholic nationalist uh, community in the North, as well as the Protestant unionist community in the North. Y you could side with one over the other, or you could say, actually, both have legitimate claims. Let's try to work out a compromise, which is, of course, what they did. And so, you know, m what I hope is that a reader will come away really understanding the conflict much better and having real empathy for both of the parties, which I believe leads to the inevitable conclusion that any kind of resolution has to be a compromise. It has the to be. word, Daniel, that's that's the uh, the word of the, of the year, perhaps of the decade, empathy, particularly in yeah. San Francisco. Uh, and you do end the book with a case for hope. You talk about three individuals. Um, Maizam Jaljuli, uh, Mutasim Ali, and Gadi Gavuharu. Uh, again, not necessarily well-known people. I actually hadn't heard of any of them. I think you use them as examples of why we should believe that there is a possible solution to this horrible problem. Um, Tell me a little bit, very briefly, about these three characters and why they should give us reason to be hopeful. Yeah, thanks for that question. And and of course, you haven't heard of them. And and I and I intended to introduce readers to 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 people that they hadn't ever heard of. Most of them. Uh, so so my son is an Arab Israeli woman, a Palestinian citizen of Israel, as as uh, as she would describe herself who um, it became uh, a, a feminist and a social justice activist um, and also committed to the notion uh, that I agree with, that there's no real future for Israel that is not a shared Arab Jewish future. One thing that escapes us a lot, and maybe this is another one of the surprises or, or enlightening pieces of information that you asked about earlier that readers might not know, over 20% of the Israeli population is Arab. The citizens of the state of Israel over 20% are Arab citizens of Israel. So think about it. In the U.S., about 13% of our population is African-American. And we know what a huge um, part of our country African-Americans are, what a, an enormous demographic they are. So, you know, it's almost twice that uh, when it comes to Arab citizens of Israel. And Maisam tells this powerful story of seeing an ultra, as she was a when she was a young, uh, a teenager, seeing this horrible, racist um, Israeli uh, uh, uh well, an, an American Israeli, a rabbi called Mer Kahana, who was a, a, a militant anti-Arab racist who was banned from serving in the parliament later on because of his racism, come to her town in Israel and, uh, and Jewish neighbors, as well as the Arab citizens of her town, built sort of a human wall to prevent 
the followers of this militant rabbi from entering the town and uh, and um, causing trouble there. And this, I, wonder, to- uh, I, I do want to move on to the other two, yeah. but I wonder if Mayor Kahan was resurrected, whether a similar thing would happen today. Uh, move on to the, uh, at least when it comes to the um, yeah. the the uh, the Israeli, the Jewish Israeli uh, inhabitants. What about uh, Mutasim Ali? Tell me about him. Yeah, I chose Mutasim Ali because he um, he's another surprise for a lot of readers um, in that he is neither Palestinian nor Jewish, nor is he uh, even Israeli, although now he does have residency in Israel. And he was uh, a refugee, a political asylum seeker from Sudan, a country suffering, you know, a sub, sub-Saharan uh, African country in the midst of terrible civil war. And he, he trekked his way across deserts of North Africa, through Egypt, to the Sinai, to Israel, to seek political asylum because he had heard that the Jews understood this kind of um, persecution and thought <clears throat> thought a, a country with a majority Jewish population, a Jewish country, would be welcoming to him. And after years and years of, uh, of sort of struggling for the rights of political asylum seekers in Israel, spending time in a giant open air prison uh, under a deportation threat, he was finally the first refugee granted um, permanent status in Israel. And he's become an immigration lawyer representing other people um, who were seeking asylum in Israel. And his inspiration for this is, as he puts it, the founding document of Israel, the Declaration of Israel's Independence, which describes the kind of country that Israel uh, should be, uh, one that he is inspired by. Yeah, and I think your point here is a good one in the sense that you're 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 noting that you're stressing that Israel is actually becoming more complicated. Yeah, much uh, more. We so think than- it's simpler because there's just Jews and Arabs who hate one another, but actually, people like Mutasim um, Ali suggest that Israel is becoming so complicated that perhaps a fix to this terrible problem will become unavoidable. And finally, uh, Gadi. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing uh, his name right. Yeah, pretty close. So Gadi is the is the reason why um, my answer to your question from Maisam, whether whether or not Israelis would react the way they did when Kahana came to her village uh, years ago is is still a positive one and still an inspiration for me. Uh, Gadi Gavaryahu founded an organization that essentially uh, bears witness to and, and stands in solidarity with uh, Jewish or Arab communities in Israel or the West Bank that are victims of sectarian terrorism or violence. So when settlers attack uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, um, when, when, when uh, right-wing Israelis murdered a young Palestinian boy a couple of years ago um, in a horrific way, when Palestinian terrorists uh, attacked a synagogue in Jerusalem during prayer, murdering uh, worshipers. Gaddi's organization uh, comes together. There are Jews, Muslims, and Christians, Arabs uh, and, and Jews alike from the West Bank, from Israel, and they go to uh, to comfort the, the 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 afflicted, to stand in solidarity with them, and to be a a, a human counter to the notion that there is no um, ability to build bridges between Jews and Arabs in 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 Israel and and in and in the Holy Land, as it's called. And to me, that's truly inspirational. Well, the bridge, you mentioned the bridge. That was Bill Clinton's favorite word. Um, yeah. I think uh, um, Daniel uh, uh, Sokach, in this a very brave book, Can We Talk About Israel, is attempting to be a bridge rather than a 
a, a squashed skunk in the middle of the road. I hope we all get the chance to read it because I think it is a, it really bends over backwards to be as fair as possible, but it's also fun and, and erudite in its own way. Um, it is, um, it is, uh, sorry, it is um, one of the books that will be featured and Daniel will be featured at the Miami Book Fair. They uh, uh been very kind to uh, introduce uh, me to Daniel. Uh, Daniel is just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the Miami Book Fair 2021, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They are also looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone and in person and online. And if you want to learn more, please visit Miami Book Fair for more information or follow uh, MBF at Miami uh, at uh, Twitter at Miami Book Fair. Uh, so, Daniel, you're going to be going to Miami to talk more about this. Um, and uh, I look forward to talking more about it. Your book, as I said, is called Can We Talk About Israel? You're in Calistoga at the moment, just north of San Francisco. Lucky man. Yeah. Uh, what else should people be reading in addition to your new book? Can we talk about Israel, Daniel? So, uh, I've been thinking a lot about um, what brings me comfort when I'm reading uh, in turbulent times. And since you uh, are a fellow San Franciscan, I'm going to recommend to listeners, whether they're uh, San Franciscans or people who just love the city or or want to love the city, uh, check out Gary Kamaya's book, Cool Gray City of Love, which is sort of a native San Franciscan's exploration of the different uh, neighborhoods and histories and social histories of the city. It's really readable. Um, there's some in a, in, in a lot of his books, there's there's a an informal way of talking about deep and important subjects, something that I've tried to do in, in my book. And I think it's a great comfort and a wonderful book. Um, and if you're interested in San Francisco, uh, there's another great book by Wendy McNaughton, another local writer and illustrator and artist uh, who has a book called Meanwhile in San Francisco, which is sort of a graphic uh, illustrated guide to the city, which is also a wonderful way to take your mind off the problems in the Middle East or where, wherever it is you're worrying about and enjoy a beautiful look at our city. Well, I'll have to read both. I don't know either book or author, but it might be interesting to have them on the show. I, uh, I'm supposed to write a, a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle called, uh, actually, sorry, the San Francisco Examiner called How to Fix San Francisco. It's not as if our city doesn't have problems of its own. So I will certainly have a look at those books. Daniel, congratulations on the book. Once again, it's can we talk about Israel, a guide for the curious, confused, and conflicted? And I think, uh, as as you suggest, um, it really makes a huge effort to be about as fair as you can possibly be about a very unfair problem. Uh, Daniel, once again, thank you so much. Keep well. Keep annoying both Zionists and anti-Zionists. We need guys like you. Thank you again. Thanks, Andrew. I look forward to running into you in the neighborhood.